Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. How we doing, Mercy Church? Good. Yeah, good. Hey, before we hop into the sermon, I want to give you one last reminder about the conference that we're holding in two weekends that's connected to our series here in the Song of Solomon. And the title of our conference is Redeeming Sex. And let me explain why we've kind of emphasized that as our title. That's because, like we've said, every single week, that we believe God is the one who is love. He made love. He gives love. So we're going to pursue his way of love in our lives. And what we said is that we're going to continue to see the way of God's love and the way of the world's love is going to continue to show itself to be very different and distinct from one another. And not only is scripture showing us that God's way of love is better than anything the world has to offer, but what we're seeing is that God's love actually redeems the brokenness that the world's way of love has caused. Right? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring more in this conference in some areas that the sermon series just doesn't naturally address. All right? So um, Dr. Timothy Atik is coming Friday night. He's the uh, leader of, you might know him as TA, some of you that do. He's the leader of the largest college ministry in the country, which happens to be at Texas A&M. Um, so go ahead, Texas A&M fans, I'll let you have your moment. Okay, good. All right, we're past that. All right. Um, college football fans everywhere, thank you, but we're past that now, okay? Uh, he's going to be in here teaching on how God's way of love redeems purity culture. That's Friday night. Saturday morning, Dr. Jennifer Degler is going to be teaching a session specifically for the women of Mercy Church called Fan the Flame. She's going to be talking about how God's way redeems a view of sex that's been largely misunderstood um, by women in churches all across the country, all right? The afternoon, we got some breakout sessions specific to how we as a church family We've got some experts coming in to talk about how we serve our brothers and sisters who deal with same-sex attraction. We've got some others talking about how we serve one another, both as marrieds and singles, and we work together and collaborate in the church to go forward together. Saturday night, we're doing a whole worship and prayer night that I'm very excited about. All that to say, I know that you as a church, we as a church, are a last-minute sign-up kind of church. I do not love that about you. I love you. I don't love that, Okay. Uh, we only have as many seats as we see here at Providence Road, okay? 300 seats. If 200 of you wait till the very last minute to sign up, Pastor Richard, who we all know and love and is working on this event, is going to stroke out, okay? So to help him, because we love him, if you sign up by midnight tonight, the cost is only $15. If you sign up at 12.01, it goes up to $5,000, Okay. <laughs> And that's to cover his medical bills. So don't do that. All right, let's make today the last minute. Go ahead and get in there, all right? All right, that said, we're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 3. That's where we're going. We've, we've kind of seen this romance bloom between this shepherd and the Shulamite woman. You know, we talked about the godly man in chapter 1 and the godly woman in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we saw them go out on a date Remember this, that he comes leaping and bounding over the hills and everything, and they go out on a date together. Well, now, uh, this week, we're talking about the wedding ceremony, and next week, we're talking about the wedding night, all right? And I, I, told, I told you at the beginning of the series, this thing's PG-13, and y'all are like, it's been kind of mild. 
It's about to get spicy, okay? That's coming um, next week. But today we're talking about the wedding, and my hope uh, as we talk about this, uh, for those of you who are dating, you're in a dating relationship, um, or you're engaged, you're kind of making your way towards marriage, because we said the purpose of dating is to work your way towards marriage and figure out whether or not you should pursue marriage. Man, I hope we just cast a really good high vision from scripture of what this thing called marriage is. And I want you to then be able to talk about it together. Is that what we want to go after together? For those of you who are married, man, I hope, and this is my hope for me and Courtney as we go through this particular sermon, I hope, man, this can be a, um, just a time to fan the flame, so to speak, afresh, get a reminder of what it is that we have been called to. What have we agreed to commit to one another? What is this thing called marriage? And to be reminded of that and refreshed of that and hopefully see some renewal in our marriage. Now, let me acknowledge our brothers and sisters who are single or single again. I want you to know, as your pastor, I love you so much. And I recognize that a series on um, dating and marriage and everything can feel like it may not be for you. We've talked about that. But I want to say for a second, if you feel like that's true, if this is just for someone else, then listen, because you belong to the body of Christ, it is also for you. Here's what I mean. In fact, one of the best emails I've gotten in this whole series came this week when um, one of our sisters in Mercy Church, who is uh, widowed, so she's now single again, she said, man, coming into this series, I was super apprehensive because we're going to be talking about all this stuff, and I knew it was going to bring up a lot of pain and, and everything else. She said, but now here a month later, man, I've just found a new ministry I never thought I would have where I'm able to encourage my brothers and sisters uh, in their marriages and speak some truth into their marriages because nobody's going to argue with a widow. That's what she says to me. So I can just say what I want to say. And I'm like, I love you so much. Um, But it's true. She sees that as an opportunity to not just kind of take a couple of months off because it's not for her, but instead learn and then be able to speak God's word and encourage others. Um, So my encouragement to you is to take your eyes off of your situation like Jesus did Look at where your dating, engaged, and married friends are and encourage them. My hope is to show you, and I'm going to say it a couple of times in this, how valuable you are to the community here and to take up that charge to engage as a form of service to your brothers and sisters. Not only that, for all of us, God's word is showing us how to walk in the world that he created. And y'all, if there's, this is a key area that everybody deals with, um, every single individual deals with in our world. And what great evangelism training I feel like we're getting in showing how God's way is better than the world's way, so we got to engage. Um, last thing I'll say, though, is as I've been praying through this series, one thing I've kind of felt is that, yes, the text naturally brings up things like marriage, like we're going to talk about today. It doesn't naturally bring up singleness. The Song of Solomon doesn't. So what I'm going to do is at the end of this series, we're just going to kind of add another sermon onto the series. I don't know what to call it other than a bonus track or something like that, right? And it's going to be on singleness. And we're just going to talk through uh, what scripture, what God has to say about singleness. Because just like I hope singles are trained in how to encourage their brothers and sisters who are married, we need to turn around and do the reverse and train brothers and sisters who are married how to encourage and equip and fight for Christ-likeness with their brothers and sisters who are single. All right? That's us being the church together. So that's what we're going to do. Now... Chapter three is divided up into two poems. First one is about the underlying anxiety monster that will sabotage a marriage and will sabotage your walk with God. We got to deal with that. Then once we deal with that, move into the wedding and why it's such a big deal. The key to both of those poems is understanding what marriage is and what marriage isn't, which brings me to the main idea of today. 
This is the one thing you got to walk out with today. Marriage is a covenantal promise, not a contractual agreement. Right? Marriage is a covenantal promise, not a contractual agreement. I don't have like sub points today. I have that point, and we're just going to keep knocking it as we walk through the through the text. A covenant. Here's what I mean by covenant, because it's not used a whole lot in modern day. A covenant is where one party gives a promise that they will uphold regardless of what the other party does. A contract is a promise based on terms and conditions. Like, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you provide me unlimited data, I will pay you a certain amount of money every single month, right? That's my agreement with AT&T. It's based on if they do, then I will. You know what I mean? But a covenant says, no matter what, I do. No matter what you do, I still will. It's a huge difference. You get that? Because understanding the difference is kind of everything today. We're going to understand what God's going to say. Our marriage is created to model his relationship with his people. Remember, God is love. God made love. God gives love. I'm going to pursue God's way of love in my life. The nature of his love is covenantal promise, not contractual agreement. A commitment to his bride, the church, that he keeps, period, full stop. And marriage between a man and a woman is supposed to be built on that same covenantal love. That's how we overcome anxiety as it relates to a relationship. And that's the cornerstone that we lay in our marriage and then build our marriage on. So we'll get into the first poem. We'll see more about it. All right, here we go. Verse one, chapter three. Here's what she says. This is, she's kind of in a dreaming. We'll talk about it in a second. She says, in my bed at night, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. So I'll arise now and go about the city through the streets and the plazas. And I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me. I asked them, have you seen the one I love? I just passed them when I found the one I love. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house to the chamber of the one who conceived me. So what's happening here? She's kind of having sort of a, like a daydream. Okay, she's lying in her bed at night and her mind is drifting to the things that she's always thinking about. We all do that. And this is what she's thinking about and kind of drifts into a, a sort of dream sequence. And the, that in my bed at night, some scholars are going to say it's one time that she just has this one dream. Or others are going to say, no, it's like night by night. This is what she's always dreaming about. Um, here's the significance of her drifting in a dream. I thought this guy, uh, Dr. William Domhoff, he's a professor emeritus now of psychology at UC Santa Cruz. Spent his whole career studying how to do dream interpretation, okay? Um, and what do our dreams mean, I guess, the way you'd say it. He said, dreams originate in the same part of the brain now known to be the most active during mind wandering, okay? So then your mind just kind of wanders to when you got a little bit of idle moment. That the dreams come from that same spot. He says, we don't dream about things like religion, politics, economics. All around the world, dreams are dominated by personal concerns. More than 70% of dreams are personal. Typically, they're dramatized enactments of significant personal concerns about the past, present, or future. In other words, our dreams reveal what we are, like, really fixated on. Except, you know, again, when I'm saying I'm talking about the daydreams. I'm not talking about, like, that time you dreamed about that big stalk of broccoli riding a unicorn down your street. You know, that's, you need to deal with that. Eat a salad. The, I'm talking about the things that you think about when you're kind of still awake and this, that's why she seeks the one she loves in her bed at night. She's fixated and altogether preoccupied with the relationship. Like, he shouldn't be there if this were real life. 
They're not married yet. He shouldn't be lying there in bed beside her. This relationship she's so excited about, here's what's happened, y'all. It's become a source of anxiety for her. In her dream, she rolls over in her bed. Oh, no. Where is he? I got to go find him. I'm going to go run through the city streets, right in an urban downtown city. We know that's, you know, the streets and the plazas. She's envisioning herself running down through the streets. She's in a panic. She's in a dangerous area, dangerous enough that there are guards there. That would never be true. You would never have a young woman running around that area of town willingly at that time of night. It's dangerous. She's panicking, though, but her dream ends with her heart at ease. Why? Because in her dream, she, get her, she gets her heart's desire. She gets her man. And then she brings him all the way back to the most secure place she can fathom, her mom's house, even her mom's very bedroom. Yes, this is also a sexual reference, and we'll handle that in a second, okay? But no matter how you interpret this thing, you do get to one realization. She is anxious about this relationship not working out, so she's projecting a scenario where she can control the outcome. That is real. That is real human heart kind of stuff right there. In a relationship, it's going well. And internally, it's all working out. But internally, you are worried, when is this thing going to fall apart? And you freak out. And it makes you anxious. And so what do you do? Start gripping the relationship. This is true for both guys and girls, by the way. But you start gripping the relationship tighter and tighter. You fixate on it. You get those crazy eyes. You know, you start making less and less subtle hints when you're together. Like you're always at the table across the table, just kind of fiddling with your ring finger, ladies. Or you're reminding him, oh, did you know that they got engaged? And this is how long they had been dating. Like not so subtle, just suggestions in the way that you're talking. You know what I mean? You're, you're crying to your friends about why he won't commit already. And you've been dating for 21 whole days after all, right? Now, listen, we spent some time talking, with, talking to the guys already about this. I'm not letting guys off the hook with being intentional. What I see here is this very unique, in, in terms of in scripture, a unique and powerful look into revealing how the human heart works. The things you focus on will eventually become the things you fixate on. And the things you fixate on will become the things that you obsess over. And sometimes your brain will even create simulated realities about it. And to me, that's evidence there's a spiritual battle going on. Because the desire to be married, that's not sinful, right? We've talked about that. It's a right and good desire. When you fixate on it, that's what we're seeing. What she's done is taken a good thing, the love of a man, the desire for marriage, and turned it into a God thing. That's how idolatry works. Take a good thing and we elevate it up here to this place that only God should be, and it becomes our obsession, but it just can't serve us. It can't serve us as a God. Listen, single people, married people, we got to deal with this because I promise you this. Listen, single, insecure, or excuse me, insecure single people become, should they get married, insecure married people. Marriage does not resolve your insecurity. You just bring that baggage in with you because a spouse cannot meet your deep need in down in your soul for security. I was telling our staff this week, I was like, we were talking it through. I was like, it's kind of like, you know, what she's doing here is she sees a tall, dark, and handsome life preserver out in the water but the problem is she's got an ocean liner's worth of insecurity and she's hoping that he can carry that. It's not, he's not going to float her. She's going to sink him or it's going to suffocate him. It's got to go back to the nature of marriage. It's a covenant designed to reflect God's covenantal love. And the reason for a lot of insecurities in marriage is that you've taken God off the throne and you put a husband or a wife there. 
And they cannot be God to you. They can emulate God's love. They can reflect it to you, but they can't be God. Why? God is love, 1 John 4. That's why we start with that in our series. When you put them on the throne, that's putting the weight of expectations on them that will suffocate and crush them, and you'll go down with them. So a great indicator of the state of your heart right now as it relates to relationships is, what are you fixating on? What are you dreaming about? What captivates your thoughts? Married and single people here. Are you anxious about your relationship? Are you anxious about the absence of one? Is that when your mind gets a little chance to wander? Is that where it goes? I want to share something with you from a book by Lisa Turkhurst. I thought it was really good. She talks about this idolatry problem. Um, I think this is true for both men and women. I think she's writing kind of targeting towards women, but it's true for both. Here's what she said. She said, if we become enamored with something in this world that we think offers better fullness of God, fullness than God, we will make room for that. We leak out his fullness to make room for something else we want to chase. It'll happen if you chase a guy you think will make you more full than God. It will happen if you chase an opportunity you think will make you more full. It will happen if you chase some possession you think will make you more full. It will happen if you, like me, chase perfect order from an imperfect world thinking it will make you more full. But at some point, every one of those things will reveal its absolute inability to keep you full. And then, I thought this was great insight, since we denied God's power to lead us, we forget his power to hold us. So in an effort not to free fall, cycle happens. We chase something or someone else that we think will ease our emptiness. You will never find completeness or fulfillment in the love of a man or a woman. It just, you won't. You'll only find what you're looking for in Christ's covenantal love, in his marriage to you, not in your marriage to him or her. But the good news is once you embrace God's covenantal love, you actually find the capacity, the strength, and the power to then give God's love to that spouse. I've said this to um, a number of church planners, everything else, just talking through discipleship. I feel like God has made us to be conduits of his love. Like we receive it from the source, and then we don't just hold on to it. We actually give it away. But the problem is when we're in relationships where we're designed to give it away, but we're not going to it. We go to God's covenantal love for us as the source for security, and then we're able to give that love away. Because when he's on the throne of your life, your power and ability to love actually increases. Now, let me acknowledge the other important reality of this dream. It is overtly sexual at the end of it. She takes him into her mother's bedroom to the place where she was conceived. Now, that's not weird or gross in their day, okay? Um, It's expressing a desire for the same kind of love and then fruitfulness that her mother had. She's taking her place as a wife And the anxiety is resolved for her a little bit because uh, as the dream ends. But she knows it's just a dream right now. So what does she say in verse 5? She says it to her friends. Remember, she keeps going back to the young women of Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This is a a callback to chapter 2. She's going to say it again in chapter 8. What's happening is that as he leads her and is intentional with her, and as they're going towards marriage, she is coming alive sexually. So she's having to say to them and really to herself, not yet. These feelings are good. It's just not the right time. Not yet. The time is coming very soon, but not yet. And men, this is why you got to be so intentional in the dating process, because you share some responsibility in her anxiety if you are vague about where the relationship is. So honor her by not playing on her emotions and certainly by not preying 
on her emotions. Be clear with her. Y'all, listen, Courtney and I's favorite ministry, I think, um, here at Mercy Church is premarital mentoring. We love doing it. We have a great time. It's one of our favorite things. We know every engagement situation is a little bit different, right? And it comes with its um, hardships and stuff like that and dynamics. But we just kind of wish every engagement could be really short. We do. Because like if you've dated well and now you have a clear commitment to get married and you see the day, right, that love is to be awakened, like we don't want you to, to hold that off for a long time. Let's get you two married because you're going to continue to feel more and more ready to awaken love. But hear me, I'm not saying that engagement is a green light for sex. There's no such thing as like, well, we're married in our heart. That is stupid. That is not theology. All right. I don't know what that is. But it is it's just not accurate. Forgive me for being a little bit just like blunt with that, okay? But it's not. That's, that's, you are married or not married, okay? Marriage is a holy vow, and sex is the gift of God for those who make that vow. So for Courtney, we're like, man, we just don't want you to delay making the vow any more than is necessary. Speaking of marriage, let's get to the wedding in the second poem. And really, it's kind of like the wedding processional. And it's a little bit different than modern day because instead of here comes the bride, it's here comes the groom, which is kind of just what it is, all right? And what I think you're going to see is the heart of Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. The woman says, who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, scented with myrrh and frankincense from every fragrant powder of the merchant? I love this, man. The Bible's so awesome. This is this little clever callback to the book of Exodus, where... God leads Israel out of slavery, and they're in the wilderness, and he leads them as a pillar of fire by night and as a column of smoke by day. And that little, what is this coming up like, columns of smoke, it's actually saying, hey, this, what's happening right now is a really big deal. This is something worthy of comparing it to God's salvation of Israel. God made a covenantal promise with his people never to leave them or forsake them. He promised he would deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And 400 years after they went in, he delivered them out. He promised to never leave them or forsake them. And he still, to this very day, has not left or forsaken his people. And this wedding procession is reminding us of God's divine covenant, of his covenantal love, and saying we're supposed to compare this wedding to that. It's supposed to show off that that's where this is heading. Y'all, I love when I get together with a couple and they're like, hey, Pastor Spencer, here's the one thing we want. We just want to make sure the gospel is preached. We, we talk about their wedding, you know, and what it's going to look like. And they're like, just make sure the gospel is preached. I'm like, I got you. Because that's what this whole thing is about. The whole idea of marriage, it's, of the wedding is a celebration of marriage. And that's something way bigger than the love between two people. It's a celebration of God's love for his people of God's salvation of his people. Man, human love, teaching about divine love. Y'all, marriage is a covenantal promise. And even the wedding and what's happening there. I even think about, I don't even think about like the way it actually looks when you're watching a wedding. You got a bride and a groom, and then you got the pastor, the only one in between them. And before they make vows this way to one another, where they, you know, the repeat after me is, before they do that, they're making a commitment where I'm saying, hey, will you, will you, will you? And they're saying yes to me as a representative of God. And then likewise, right? There is another person involved in this marriage and it is God himself, right? That's what's happening even there. One of the most consistent images God uses, he uses two images, I feel like, um, when he talks about how 
his relationship to us, what it looks like. One is a parent to a child, right? He is God the Father, and we're his children, you know? And that's where you see covenantal love, and I don't think there's anything more powerful in the current Western culture to help people understand God's love than even a parent's love for the child. Because no matter what that child does, you still love that child. If you're a parent, you're a parent, you know this. Like no matter how many times that child takes a piece of toast with peanut butter on it, puts it in the DVD player that we used to have those things, remember those? And then presses the button and in it goes and ruins the DVD player. You still love that child. No matter what, you still love them, right? That's covenantal love. No matter what you do, I'm still gonna love you, still gonna provide for you. You don't have to perform for me to earn my love. The other way he does that, the other way God talks about it is through marriage. He says he is married to his people. That's why when his people sin and worship other gods, what does he call it? Adultery. That's the language. It's because he is the groom, his people are the bride, and yet when his people turn their back on him and they commit adultery against him, he may punish them, yes, but he never leaves them, ever. That's because the nature of his love is covenantal promise. No matter what you do, I'm still here. Not contractual agreement. Well, you mess up, you're in, so I'm out. And listen, the security of that covenant with God is actually what causes us to love him more. Because we can have peace that comes when you're guaranteed forever love. Think about this. If God's love were a contract where if you messed up, he's out, that'd be a terrible faith to live in. You would have constant anxiety and constant guilt. Sound familiar? You'd be constantly insecure about where you stand with God, probably feeling guilty and trying to make up for your mess, you know, so that you're, so you, you mess up a lot, so you got to do a lot of good things to somehow hopefully keep up your end of the contract so God doesn't, you know, withdraw it from, from his end. But then, what if you actually are a good person and you're thinking about God as a, you know, in terms of contract? Well, if he doesn't start giving you some blessings soon, you're going to be frustrated he's not holding up his end of the deal. Y'all. I mean, that sounds exhausting. A faith that you would live in that's either full of anxiety or entitlement? I don't know what that is, but it ain't Christianity. But it's what a lot of people walk around with. Either anxiety or entitlement. I'm frustrated God because he didn't hold up his end. Or I'm nervous about what God's going to do to me because I didn't hold up mine. That is not Christianity. No. And not only is it not Christianity, because Christianity is about covenantal love, that is an awful way to approach marriage. But it's the way a lot of people approach it. If you do, then I will. But if you don't, I won't. Marriage becomes a scorecard of rights and wrongs. God says, no, my love is a covenant where I sacrifice for my people and provide for them even when they sin against them. And when the Apostle Paul comes along in Ephesians 5 and says the nature of marriage is covenantal, it starts in Ephesians 5.21, we submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. So we go and look at what Jesus did, and that becomes the way that we submit to one another, which means put you before me. Then he talks about how husbands and wives have differing roles. We're going to get that later in the series. Over the next four sermons, we're going to hit on sex, conflict, lifelong love, stuff like that. So yes, in that setting, we're going to talk about how sin can shred a marriage apart. I'm not discounting the reality of sin and what happens, uh, the pain that it causes and where pain exists. Because I know some of y'all are listening to this. You're like, yeah, but you don't understand. You're talking about this covenantal love where I'm in no matter what. You do not understand what's going on here. 
Are you telling me I got to be with that person like forever? You know, that's a little bit of what, what you might be feeling. Listen, where sin exists, grace abounds all the more. And I'm trying to show you what your marriage is to be aiming towards. And I recognize that there's a lot of things that are going to have to be worked through in order to point that direction. But regardless of whether your marriage works that direction or continues to struggle or it's already been decimated and you're here trying to figure out what to do next, it is the love of God, the covenant of the love of God that will carry you. That's what will carry you and what we're trying to exalt here. Look at verse 7. It says, look, Solomon's bed. Now, remember, Solomon's the author. And what he's doing is he's creating a picture where this woman is saying, my man is like King Solomon. Okay? Solomon's bed surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty men of Israel. All of them skilled with swords, trained in warfare. Each has his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. I don't know about y'all. I had like eight groomsmen in my wedding, and I thought I was a stud. Okay? This guy's rolling in 60 deep. And certainly mine were not all mighty men. Okay? It's just I had, uh, in fact, I'll go tell... Logan, buddy, I know if you're watching, I'm sorry, but you deserve this. One of my groomsmen um, was standing there. Now, it's July 9, okay, 7 p.m. Um, it's hot. The air conditioning in the church stopped working. 400 people in the room. It's, it's hot. What did my groomsman Logan do? He did the one thing, groomsmen, this is, some of y'all, this, I, I say this before every wedding that I do, don't lock your knees. That's right. Don't lock your knees. What did Logan do? He locked his knees. And here's Brad, who's preaching. It's his first wedding he's ever done. He's in point three of five. I don't know why you got a five-point sermon, okay? But he's new at doing weddings. So Logan's got his knees completely locked. He didn't hydrate during the day. And sure enough, point three of five, me and Courtney are sitting here. Oh, you know, this is a great moment. And we hear 400 people gasp. And I'm like, oh, she is beautiful. I agree. But no, (laughs) that's not what they were gasping at. They were gasping because Logan was falling over. And then on this nice wooden floor with just a small little layer of carpet, Boom, right? <sighs> Logan's down. And so two mighty men from my groomsmen, they went, got him under the arm, got that guy out of there, and we got married, right? That's how that went down. It was great. That's not the guys that are here, okay? These guys that this shepherd has himself surrounded with, these are the mighty men, skilled with swords, trained in warfare, actively ready to guard against, what does it say? The terror of the night, verse 8. The terror or the night, terror of the night, what is that? That's things that would threaten this wedding. And I think this is a great picture of what we should have in our marriages. Listen, you will have an enemy that will try to attack your marriage. I promise you. I promise you. He would love, Satan would love nothing more than to distract you, to frustrate you, to make you feel anxious or entitled, and then to get right in between the two of you and pit you against one another. I promise you have an enemy who is fighting against you. Think about the creation account. God creates man, woman. There's a beautiful wedding where he brings them together. And then right after that, there's a war. In comes Satan to try and pit them against each other. Y'all, I know you have somebody fighting against your marriage. Married people, here's my question to you. Who do you have fighting for your marriage? Who? Who's fighting for your marriage? Single folks, listen, I talked to, this is what I was talking about earlier. Every time you sit down with a husband or wife and you say, I want to pray for your marriage right now. You are fighting for, that's holy war. 
You're fighting for their marriage. That's holy brotherhood right there and sisterhood. When you serve as an accountability partner in a D group, that's you, man. And you say something like, man, you seem a little cold towards your spouse. What's going on? That's holy warfare against the enemy trying to get in there. When you go to them, you say, I'm watching your kids so you can go on a date. That's warfare. When you're serving kids ministry, they can be in here so they can be in here undistracted. That's warfare. Married couples, let me turn around and ask the same question to you. How are you fighting for uh, the Christ-likeness of the brothers and sisters who are single that are in your circle? And do you have any of them? And if not, you need to. We need to be fighting for them in there. Not just, man, before they're uh, married and their purity, but no, more than that, who has God called them to in Christ? Helping them diagnose the relationships they're in and everything else. Fighting for them to be who God has called them to be. we got to fight for each other because I know we got somebody fighting against us. you got to catch that, y'all. And that requires so much sacrifice. So much. It will. It'll eat up your calendar. But it's worth it. We seem to be, in middle-class Christianity, really good at having public weddings and private marriages. We seem to be really good at inviting all of our friends to get together and celebrate in our union and then building a straight-up fortress around our marriages, the real stuff, around the real stuff where nobody knows it. Like I said earlier, that is so dangerous. Wives, you need sisters, husbands, you need brothers. That's how I chose some of my groomsmen. Y'all, it was a little bit awkward. I had some longer-standing friendships with guys um, that you would think I would put up there in that spot of groomsmen, but... I didn't ask them to stand beside of me because of this right here. I needed guys beside me that would fight for my marriage. And they did that. And we did that for one another for a long time. You know, we, we that's 17 years ago now. And so we started to move to different cities and we made a commitment to one another. We were going to make sure our, our way of fighting was to say, you got some people close to you that are fighting for your marriage because I'm going to hold you accountable to that until you get them. So when I hear, like, y'all, naturally what I'm saying is you need to be in community, like real community with other people. And when you say things like, I'm too busy, that kills me. Because you're probably too busy if you think of community like uh, just in terms of a schedule burden. But I hear too busy, and what I hear is a soldier saying he's too busy. He's too busy to stay with his unit. He's just going to do his own thing because he can move faster and more efficient that way. And you can for a minute. You can get out on your own, be a little stealthy, be hidden from what all is going on for a minute, but who's got your back? Because that's right where the enemy's coming, right into your blind spot. That's why Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10, uh, uh, that epistle over and over and over again, Acts 2 talks about it. Man, you got to have somebody who is calling you away from hardening your heart. Who are those people? For the sake of your marriage, please Please get some believers who understand covenantal love and get in community with them. But by the way, that's even why we have a membership covenant here at Mercy Church. Why we ask you to belong to the body. Why? It's our way of committing God's covenantal love to one another. Again, it's covenantal love. We don't have a membership contract. You do your part, I'll do mine. No, no, it's covenant. It's commitment with one another. So get into a group of people who will you'll fight together. Um, yeah, let's keep going. I can keep going too much on that. Verse nine, King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. It's a nice ride. Its interior is inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. And then she says, go out young women of Zion and gaze at King Solomon wearing the crown his mother placed on him at the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. 
This is the shepherd's wedding day. His parents have been involved, his parents and her parents, and it's awesome. It's the day of his heart's rejoicing. I know that that was my wedding day for me. It was the day of my heart's rejoicing. I mean, we planned it for months, and by we, I mean Courtney planned it for months, <laughs> but I got my tux, okay? And everybody just, if you know our crew, you know she's the organizer in there. But by the end of the night, we had made beautiful vows, danced late into the night with our friends and family, and drove off together as husband and wife. And I mean, just even standing here telling you guys that, thinking back on that day in Gibsonville, North Carolina, makes, man, my heart rejoices. This is the best day, second to the day God saved me. It's the best day of my life. I have four kids. That day is still the best day of my life, all right? I love my kiddos. They, their births rank right after that. But this is, this is my wife that the Lord gave me, and this wedding is so beautiful, Man, an amazing day. All of that work went into it. It was an amazing day. And all that planning went into the first four hours of our marriage. The point of a wedding is to celebrate a new marriage. But here's what I know. The wedding industry is far more lucrative than the marriage industry. I know that's true about our culture. What's the marriage industry? The marriage industry is local churches, pastors, and then counselors. Right? And you're like, yeah, but what about marriage conferences? Yes, that's where the churches and counselors get together and try and get you to come in and talk about what's going on. Because here's the deal. You're willing to pay a photographer $30,000 and promise to name your first kid after him or her. Right? I know. But then you balk at the idea of paying a counselor $100 to sit down and work on your marriage. You know, we got a relationship with a counseling group right down the road here in town for exactly this reason, to help your marriage thrive. You planned every song, every seat at every table, but you can't plan a budget. You can't plan a night out to work on your, my point is yes, care for your wedding. Sure. But care all the more for your marriage. And y'all, God love, he loves a good wedding. I told you at the beginning of this, God loves love. He loves it. He loves weddings. He's into them. Jesus' first miracle happens at a wedding. All right, you see it. Jesus keeps on referring to the church as his bride. The reason he loves weddings is because weddings are a celebration of marriage. The celebration of grand narrative of scripture, his covenantal love. Y'all in Revelation 19, there's a promise that one day we who are the bride of Christ will finally have our wedding feast. Our celebration, not that we upheld our part of the contract. No, our celebration of his covenantal love towards us. That's what the gospel is. An announcement of God's covenantal love to you. Whether or not you're married this side of heaven, then it's not really the emphasis of scripture, nor is it the emphasis of the church. It's great, it's a gift, but it's not ultimate. God's marriage to his church is the point. And you and I, if you're in Christ, are his bride. Look at Revelation 19. Then I heard something, this is verse six like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Which by the way, when we sing in here on Sunday mornings, that's what we're doing. We are rehearsing for heaven. 
We're not just singing because we don't know what to do when we get together, okay? And we need to warm up or something. That's not what that is. It's not calisthenics, okay? That is the saints gathering together and getting ready for heaven. This is why we sing. Uh, this morning, we sang Psalm 47. We sang Psalm 23, right? What we're doing is we're rehearsing and reminding one another of God's covenantal love. That's a little extra on worship. Just made me think about it. Verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents Ephesians 2.10, God created you to walk in good works that he laid out before the foundations of the world for you to walk in them for the fine linen represents those righteous acts of the saints. And then verse nine, he said to me, write this, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. Y'all, what the gospel says that you and I were created for that moment right there. I mean, it's Revelation 19. There's only two chapters left in the Bible after that, okay? And it's more celebration of that. This is where it ends. It's this wedding feast this closeness to God, reconciliation, around a table, not worried about any of the details of it. You're not worried about the calories in that feast and what it's going to do to your body over time. You're not worried about what your uncle is saying to your friend. None of that, right? This is a perfect, all sin is gone, and we are just celebrating together God's covenantal love for us. You were created for that. And you and I chose sin against him, chose to go our own way and said no to that. Chose adultery over faithfulness. We all did. But if you look at that passage, what it says is that this is the marriage feast of the lamb. That's because in the Old Testament, the way your sin was atoned for, you had to go into the temple and sacrifice a pure, spotless lamb, something that was symbolically sinless to pay for your sin because it had to be paid for in blood, a sinless substitute. But what God, when God sent Christ, God said, this is my son, your sinless substitute who died once for all sins. It's why Jesus at the table, as he passed out communion for the first time, said that his blood made a new covenant, a new covenant, no more lambs because he is the lamb. This is why John looks at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the covenant. It's the faith covenant that if you believe he died for your sins and you believe he rose again, you can be there. You receive forgiveness for your sin, newness of life to walk in now and eternity around the throne, eternity at the feast. What a promise. Man, what a covenant. Repent and believe. Here's how I want to finish this. I want to take some time for response here. I want to ask, uh, we're going to get into a time of prayer. I want to ask for married couples to pray together. Um, man, I want to ask you to pray, and as you do, I want you to hold hands. Men, I want you to pray a prayer of thanksgiving over your wife, and then wives for your husbands. I want you to repent to God where you've treated your marriage as a contract instead of a covenant. And let your spouse hear that repentance. God, come up to me after the first service, he wouldn't mind me saying this. And 
says the first time that they've prayed together, been married eight years. Um, it's just a real mile marker in his life. And what I told him, what I'm going to tell you is don't let this be a uh, like capstone. Let it just be the start of a new rhythm. But we're going to practice it here. Um, and if your spouse isn't here or you do not have a spouse, it's totally okay. You pray for them, right? Singles, pray for your married friends. Marrieds, pray for your single friends as well. Let's pray for one another. Let's thank God for his covenantal love. And let, I, I want to hear, it needs to be audible. Just like first service, man, the room was loud with prayer and it needs to be that way. Now, here's the caveat. For those of you that are newer around here and you're like, I don't want to do that. That scares me. I don't know about praying with other people in the room. Okay. It's, I'm going to count to three and then I'm going to tell us to pray. When I get to three, you just bow your head real quick, okay? That's a universal signal that you're doing your own thing and we're cool with that, all right? But if you've been around for a minute, maybe you don't know the person beside you, but maybe you want to take that step because you need people. Maybe you just need the voice of another person praying for you. You just introduce yourself and then you all start praying, all right? We're going to pray together for just about a minute, maybe a little bit more. Couples pray together. All of you, let's, let's spend some time praying and then I'll come and I'll close this here in just a moment, okay? You pray one, two, three. You start praying. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of love. Thank you for the marriages that are represented here. Oh, I pray that you would do a, uh, a renewing work. Show us how 
to give that love that you have given us to one another. I pray, I pray that blessing over our married couples in here, but over the bride of Christ, God. For our single brothers and sisters, I pray for renewed hope, a, a refreshed union with you, a renewed calling to their brothers and sisters. I pray it for those that are married towards our single brothers and sisters as well. I pray that the bride would be worthy, just a little more aware of your holiness, a little more at peace through the security you give us. And Father, I pray for those that do not know you, with the marriages, with the relationships, with the love of this church body for one another, just like John 17 tells us, would that be what makes those that don't know you come to saving faith in you? It's a moment, Father. It's just a moment. I pray that it's the beginning of a new rhythm, but we need these moments. And so I pray that you, oh God, multiply your blessing on, on us. Give us willing hearts to receive that blessing of your covenantal love. And may the days of contractual love be gone from us. May it be gone. We love you. We pray in the name of the lamb that was slain. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.